If you have your Bibles, and turn with me to Genesis in chapter 12. Genesis in chapter 12. We'll be reading the first nine verses in a few moments. From Genesis 12. I do not need to remind you that the last year has been unlike any that we've experienced. I think I've said it before that the year 2020 began with the Australian bushfires. Remember that? How serious that was? And that was going to be the big story, wasn't it, of 2020? I looked into it this week and it was a blaze that destroyed 47 million acres. And it displaced thousands of people. On 8th of January 2020, Prince Harry and Meghan quit the royal family. I didn't even know you could do that. And then Donald Trump became the first third president of the President of the United States to be impeached. And he was impeached again a second time, although he was acquitted yesterday. He was acquitted on the 5th of February and he was acquitted yesterday on the 13th of February. And then there was a coronavirus. Lou virus, wasn't there? Lou virus that was detected in Wuhan in China. Not a big deal. Then everything clung shut. Boris Johnson, I think it all came home when Boris Johnson was admitted to the ICU with COVID-19. Everything started getting cancelled. Because the convention, among other things, was cancelled. And less than it. A year later, 4 million people in the United Kingdom have tested positive for COVID-19. Over 110,000 COVID-related deaths and over 2.3 million around the globe. And if that wasn't bad enough, over the spring and over the summer, protests started breaking out. Sometimes peaceful, but many times violent, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in America. And then in the midst of it, we, we, we almost forgot that there was a, on the 4th of August, a massive explosion rocked Beirut, Beirut, killing 190 people. Hardly made the news at all. And then by late summer, wildfires were out of control in California. And I think it spread, all, if I remember rightly, it spread all the way up the west coast of America, almost to Washington State. And then President Trump himself in America contracted COVID-19, spent three days in hospital with a little bit of drama around the edges. And then in December, remember that for those, those days, will we, won't we get a trade deal with the EU? Remember those heady days? We did. And then on January 6th, there was that riot on, cap on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Joe Biden became President of America and now vaccines have been speedily distributed in our country. And we're very thankful that we didn't sign up to the EU vaccine protocol. Everyone everywhere suddenly has always supported Brexit because of that. By any measure, 2020 and now the first few weeks of 2021 have become the most consequential in recent memory. We often talk like that, don't we? We talk about that, like, you know, like in that language, but this time it's real. You know, we're living in amazing times, and this is really important. And it's always an exaggeration, isn't it? It's always an exaggeration. 
But the, the last year, it isn't. It isn't an exaggeration. There'll be articles, books, films, and books produced about this very year. And our children and grandchildren will tell each other about what we did in the great coronavirus. Those yet unborn will read in their textbooks about the things that we have lived with this year. With disbelief. What do you mean you weren't able to go to each other's houses? What do you mean you had to wear a mask all the time? And there are some names that have written, been written into history. Captain Tom Moore. I've never heard of Sage. I thought it was a, I thought it was a herb. But everyone's heard of Sage now. Social distancing. I didn't even know what it meant before last year. AstraZeneca. Sweden, the Swedish way. Chris Whitty. These names are etched into our country's history. And yet, there, there, there is a point to my rambling. And yet, all of these events taken together and added up into their significance do not begin to approach, let alone equal or surpass, the world-altering future-determining, cosmic-shaping significance of God when 4,000 years ago he called one man and his family to move to a new land. Sight unseen. It is, that is not an exaggeration to say that Genesis 12, 1-9 make everything else that we've experienced in the last year pale into significance. Insignificance. We, we shouldn't be unconcerned about the things of the world. We do not want to be ignorant about the events of our day. But it's my responsibility as your pastor to remind you, as I reminded myself, that the most important things of life are contained in this book. Please do not become a news junkie and ignore the good news that is in this book. This book contains the most important news of all time. And 4,000 years ago, God called a man and his family to leave their home. And in the midst of that call, God made promises. And there is nothing that has happened in the last year, or the last decade, or in the last 2,000 years, more cosmically significant than these promises. And save for the Lord's return, and the unfolding of these promises in our day, you will not have anything more important this year. Become an expert on the promises of God. Become an expert on what God promises. So we come to Genesis 12, a great climatic moment in redemptive history. Follow along as I read God's word. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the yoke of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord and Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. The first thing we notice in this remarkable passage is the principle of election at work. Why Abraham? And we can come to no other reason other than God. God decided he would pluck Abraham and his family out of the Ur of the Chaldees and made promises and sent them to Canaan. Joshua 24 tells us that they were on the other side of the river worshipping pagan gods. It is not that there was some great latent possibility in Abraham, or that he alone of all the great men of the East was spiritually fervent. You see, at the same time that Abraham was alive, Melchizedek was alive, that great mysterious king of Salem. Why not choose Melchizedek to receive the promises of God? Or Job? Job may well have been alive at this same time. Why not choose Job? Job was a righteous man, but God chooses Abraham when he had done nothing to deserve it. God's sovereignty and purpose. And as we come to Genesis 12, we see that the action in Genesis is focusing in and slowing down. And for 11 chapters, we've been on a wonderful journey across the globe. We've looked at the creation, we've looked at the fall. We had Cain and Abel. We had a global flood. We had the Tower of Babel. We had nations spreading out. We've spanned the globe. We've had centuries, if not millennia. And now we focus on the remaining four-fifths of the book of Genesis on four generations from one family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's offspring. And when God first speaks to Abraham, he gives him a command in verse 1. Go. Go. The first word God speaks to Abraham is go. From your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And there are concentric circles moving into the most intimate connection. I want you to leave your home, your country... And then your relatives and your kindred. And then your father's house. Now he will bring many with him, but he's leaving his immediate family behind. And to think that Abraham did not even get to see where he was going. God simply said, go to a land and I will show you. I love this line from John Calvin on this. It is better with closed eyes to follow God as our guide 
than by relying on our own providence to wander through those circuitous paths which it devises for us. In other words, it is better to go with your eyes closed, clinging to the hand of God, than to go with your eyes open in your own strength. We often think that our plans, that we've got it covered. But if you're leaving God out of the mix, it will only bring disaster. So go, and he goes. And as impressive as Abraham's faith is, and we'll have occasion in the weeks ahead to focus in on what it means that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What I want us to just see here is that the main emphasis is not on Abraham's faith. Not on Abraham's faithfulness, but on God's promises. Brothers and sisters, we can cling. Not to our own wonderful abilities, not to our own gifts, but we can cling to God's promises. Notice notice verses 2 and 3. God makes how many promises? Seven. He makes seven promises which encompass three expanding circles of blessing. He had to leave behind shrinking circles, nation, kindred, household. Now expanding circles of blessing, you, your family, enter the earth. And look at the seven promises that God makes. The first promise, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. Not, 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 not only will you be plentiful, but an actual nation from you. A political unit with common land, language and rudimentary government. Not just that you're going to have a big family reunion one day, but you'll be a great nation. That's the first promise that God makes to Abraham. The second promise is, I will bless you. And blessing envisions spiritual and physical Now this isn't just an exact blessing, a promise to every individual, whoever follows God, that you can expect these things. But it was the promise made to Abraham. And blessing in the Old Testament sense meant three things, prosperity, fertility and victory. And that is what God unilaterally promises to Abraham. Now that we can see among their people, it is not that every single one of them had all of these things. But for Abraham, as the recipient of this promise, he will have prosperity, physical abundance, he will have fertility, many offspring, and he will have victory. That's the second promise. The third promise is, I will make your name great. You'll be great in numbers, and you'll be great in significance. The fourth promise, you will be a blessing. Abraham's name will be and is synonymous with blessing. We get an idea of what this meant at the end of the Old Testament in Zechariah 8 verse 13. And as you have become a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. When people think Abraham, they think people associated with that name, there is blessing. The fifth promise, I will bless those who bless you. So how people treat you is how I will treat them. The sixth promise, him who dishonours you, 
I will curse. Those who treat you poorly, they will be subject to curse. And in Genesis, we've seen since more than once since chapter 3, the outworking of the blessing and the curse. Now the line of blessing is coming down to Abraham, but not only on him and his family in the chosen line, but everyone who comes into contact with him. That's what we see throughout the rest of Genesis. You do right by Abraham. Even if you're a foreign king, you'll be blessed. If you do bad by Abraham, even if unawares, the Lord shuts up the wombs in the household and you are cursed. And the final promise, the seventh, and you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. So there is a progression of blessing. Abraham would be blessed. His name would be used as a blessing. Those who blessed him will be blessed. And finally, all the families on the earth shall be blessed in him. This is a snowball that is gathering pace, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Some of you watch home repair shows on TV. I do not. Um, <laughs> but because there are like about a hundred versions of the same thing. You want to buy that house? Okay. You want to fix up that house? Okay. They should really put Andrew on telly, shouldn't they? They really should. But we'll fix it up. And I'm sure when they decide, I'm sure, I often think about this, when they decide who they get to put on these home repair shows, they have to have some kind of emotional bandwidth. Because you can't have the person, you know, you can't have the person who, who they put on the TV and they open the door and the person goes, hmm, that's not bad. I mean, that would just completely kill the whole show. No, you have to be somebody who would be, oh, oh, you know, absolutely, sorry, absolutely explosive in their joy. And they see the remodeled front door. Amazing. And they open the door. I can't believe what you did to the staircase. And the kitchen, oh, that kitchen is cosmic, cosmically stupendous. And they always have the last surprise, apparently, in the bathroom. And then there is a, there's always something, you know, like there's a model of a red squirrel, in, which is as much used as a chocolate teapot. You'll never use it, but there it is. It's just awesome. And everything is better. And that is a, a little bit like this sevenfold blessing. God is coming and saying, I have promises for you. You are not going to believe it. Well, actually, Abraham does, amazingly enough. But think about it. We are so familiar with this story. Put yourself in his shoes. I, 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 it's difficult to do that. I try to do it. But it's like, James, follow me. Your family is one day going to have a seat at the UN Security Council. You'll be a great nation. And I'll give you material, wealth, military success. Your name will be known throughout the whole world. And this good news is not just for you. You'll be an instrument of good times for others. I'll give prosperity and favour. Whoever does right by you, I will punish whoever treats you poorly. And in the, in the end, James, and people across the whole planet will rejoice because of you. Really? Really? But God is opening the next room and the next door more blessing, more promises. And Abraham's response is to come. 
And in verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He doesn't know where he is going, but he knows that the Lord has promised to bless him. He doesn't know where he is going, but he knows that the Lord has promised to bless him. It's a little difficult to know precisely the order of events here. If you look at Genesis 11, 31 to 32, it says, Terah took Abraham his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abraham's wife, and they went to pour from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran they settled there. So there we have Terah leading his family out of Ur, they settled in Haran. And then in verses 1 to 3 we have the Lord appearing, and then verse 4, Abraham, 75 years old, departs Haran. So there, clearly there is a departure in two stages. You go from Ur, and then by a very strange route, you go five or six hundred miles to the northwest on the border of what today would be Iraq and Turkey. You go up to Haran before you come down south through the northern part of the Promised Land. So did he come from Ur, or did he come from Haran? Also in Scripture we see often that it is a reference that he came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Genesis 15, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. Nehemiah 9, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur. And Acts 7, and Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land, and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. So there is a two-stage departure. And it's a little unclear where the message of verses 1 to 3 come in. Some scholars say maybe Abraham received the calling twice. Maybe settling in Haran was a sign of some disobedience. You did not make it all the way to the promised land and you need to be dislodged from there again. Or maybe it is called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans because there was a message there. And later there was a subsequent message that we're not told of that removed him from Haran. So it may be that chapter 11, Terah taking the family and going to Haran, is the human earthly perspective what it looked like to those around them, they just decided to move. Whereas chapter 12, 1 to 3 is the heavenly perspective. This is what was really happening. But God had called Abraham. And then verse 4 picks up with them leaving not Ur, but the second stage of leaving Haran. And Abraham is not given a promise of the land until he gets there. Initially he was just told, go and I will show you the land. And then in verse 7, the Lord appears to him, and now he receives the promise, to your offspring I will give this land. We do, well, we do not know what the appearing of the Lord was like. Was it an angelic messenger? Was it a human messenger? Was it an audible voice? Was it, was it a theopony? Was it a dream? We do not know what it was like when Abraham got the message in Genesis 12. We know that Hebrews tells us in those last days God has spoken to us by his Son. 
And the way that he speaks to us by his Son is in the fullness of the Son's revelation, which we find in Scripture. <coughs> so these are not the divine messages that we're expecting from the Lord. Lest it happen to you, I heard in another church a child was giving this story in a Sunday school class and was terrified that he would give a message that night that God would tell him to leave his family. But this is a special moment in redemptive history. We don't expect that God speaks to us this way. He speaks to us through his word. But when he comes to the land and God promises, I will give it to you. There is surely a recapitulation of God's work in Noah, now working in Abraham. Noah was a second kind of Adam. Abraham is a second kind of Noah. They're running on parallel tracks. God spoke to Noah in the ark, Genesis 8 verse 15. He tells him, come out of the ark. Noah obeys and leaves the ark. And then out of the ark he builds an altar. And God blesses Noah, tells him to be fruitful and multiply. He establishes a covenant with Noah and his offspring. You have seven steps with Noah. Think about Abraham. God spoke to Abraham. He said, come out, come out of there, come out of your country. He obeyed and he went and he built an altar. And God blessed Abraham. He told him that he would increase and become a great nation. He promised the land to Abraham and to his offspring with a covenant to follow. And the land will be significant throughout the rest of Genesis and throughout the Pentateuch. Always in the background, often in the foreground. When will we get the land? And you can mark out the end of each book in the Pentateuch by its geography. Very intentionally, each book ends with a geographical marker about where they are where they're going, because they're focused on the land. Just very quickly, Genesis ends in chapter 50 with Joseph promising his brothers, when I die in Egypt, some day later take my bones and bring them to Canaan. Exodus 40 ends with the glory cloud filling the tabernacle, ready to lead the people on their journey out of the wilderness to Canaan. The last verse in Exodus simply says, These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Numbers ends with, These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses, the people of Israel in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, at Jericho. They're close, they're almost there. And Deuteronomy ends with, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigour unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the, then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror 
that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Deuteronomy ends with Moses going to the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah. He looks at the promised land, which he will not see, and Joshua will lead them in. So each of the five books end with a geographical marker. Here we are. Here we're going. We're going to inherit the land that God has promised. And you notice, as great as these promises are, immediately there are two massive obstacles. Genesis 12, verse 6, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. God, you promised this land to me, but it isn't there for the taking. There are Canaanites there. That's one obstacle. And Genesis 11, verse 30, now Sarai was barren, she had no child. So God is making these amazing promises, which have to do with land and children. And both seem humanly Impossible. There are, no, there are bad people in the land and there are no people in Sarah. But God chose to work through a couple who had no earthly potential to accomplish the very thing he most wanted to accomplish. Think about that. Just think about that for a moment. A central thing that God is going to do is that he will have children. And in, according to accomplish that, what does he do? He picked an elderly couple who haven't been able to have children. That's the way God does things. And what follows from verse 9 is the interplay between the God of promise and Abraham the man of faith. Over and over we encounter this question, can God be trusted? Will Abraham trust him? Will Abraham's descendants really inherit the land? Will there be any descendants? Will God's promises be rendered null and void? And what we see in Genesis 12, 13 and 14 are three scenes in which the promise of the land seems threatened. The promise is threatened by famine. The promise is threatened by a war with Lot. And the promise is threatened by the rise of the eastern kings. And after these threats, we're brought to chapter 15, where the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham. And in the midst of these obstacles, what can Abraham do? He can trust and obey. He can believe. Brothers and sisters, it seems bleak at times, maybe in your own heart, maybe spiritually, maybe around us, maybe circumstantially. What can we do? What can we do? We can trust and obey. We can believe. Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. To go out from a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like that? And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. In a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. How do you end the sermon on Genesis 12? Many of you have heard sermons, done studies on Genesis 12. You can end the message by talking about faith. We must believe like Abraham. You can end the message by talking about our responsibility. You are blessed to be a blessing to others. 
You can end the message by talking about obedience. We must follow God wherever he leads, even if we do not know where he has taken us. And all of that is true, and all of that is appropriate. But as I was studying and praying, I saw a different emphasis. You see Abraham respond in faith and obedience. But this passage, is, this passage emphasises something else in his response. And brothers and sisters, this is where our response must begin. He worships. He worships. Twice he builds an altar in response to God's promises to him. That is what you're going to see. And when you build an altar, it means you stop. You offer thanks and you worship God for his goodness to you. Maybe the first thing that we ought to do when God makes stunning promises, is to fall on our faces and say thank you. Before we get to appropriately thinking about faith and belief and obedience and blessing others, before any of that, and in fact none of that will have the fuel unless we genuinely stop to worship, to say this is amazing. What good news. Galatians 3 verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What good news we have here in Genesis 12. It is a message of salvation to a world of judgment. I'll say that again because I... We, we live in a nation under judgment. And this is a message of salvation in a world of judgment. A world that is facing the judgment after the Tower of Babel. A world that has been wiped away in the flood. And here comes the call of deliverance. The climatic blessing of which it is for all peoples. In the Old Testament, God showed a particular elected love for Israel, but he never took his eyes off the nations. Brothers and sisters, from the beginning, his plan was for all people on earth to be blessed through Abraham. Matthew makes that clear. Matthew's gospel ends with the Great Commission. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy, the book of the gen Genesis of Jesus Christ. This is part of the story of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, from the offspring, from the seed of Abraham. And it's no coincidence that Matthew ends his gospel with the word go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The blessing is for all who will receive the promised child of Abraham. Not Isaac, but Jesus, and receive him in faith. And when you do, you show yourself to be a child of Abraham and to receive the blessings and the promises of Abraham. Think of it. Some people will watch this from home. Some, some of us in the church. But what an amazing thing that is. If you belong to Jesus Christ here in this room. I want you to think about it. If you belong to Jesus Christ this morning. Here in this drafty room that looks a bit like the, the, the bottom side of the ark. You are a fulfilment of this promise. 
a 4,000-year-old promise. The line has been circuitous. It's always been stamped out time and time again. And you, through no goodness of your own, through nothing in you that God should have chosen you, gave you the gift of faith. He put you in the hearing of the gospel. He put you in a family or a town or a country where the gospel was preached. Or he gave you a Bible that you could read. Or he gave you a Christian book. Or he gave you a parent. Or he gave you a pastor. Or somebody who told you about the message. And here you are. You're a child of Abraham. And you're a fulfilment of this promise. You see what God promised Abraham 4,000 years ago is of so much more earthly significance than anything that has happened in the last year. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived in thinking that the real important things is the headlines in the paper or the newsreaders. This is the most important thing. This is good news. That you can be the fulfilment of a promise that God made to Abraham. This is good news. Thousands of years later, it hasn't been overturned and it's growing and growing and growing. Even more blessing for all those who will call upon the name of Christ. What is our response to that good news? Do not be afraid. Give thanks and give worship to Almighty God. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.